we actually now have two weeks in a year, one in December, one in July, where she's shutting down the company because what she found is the way our culture was is that everyone loves to work and we're working really hard. But if I go on vacation, I'm just on my Slack and my email and I'm not actually on vacation. Um, and then if I'm emailing, then people are going to email me back. And then it's like a cycle, right? I'm just using myself as an example. So she has two weeks of we're shutting down, meaning like you can't Slack someone, you can't email someone. Like everyone's going to just shut up for a vacation, you know, but for a week at a time and try to just reset and be ready to like to finish the year or to start the year. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. All right, so I am super excited today. We just had Kate Jerkins, who is the Chief Business Officer and Second in Command for Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey as a guest on the Second in Command podcast. You're gonna love her um, ideas that she's sharing, the passion she's sharing, the history of the brand Uncle Nearest, and also really how they've built out the organization. She was employee number one. They've got well over 100 employees now in a business that has raised well over probably, I would guess, 100 million. I don't know the exact number because they wouldn't disclose, but my guess is over about 100 million because they've got 50 million and just in the distillery side of the business alone. Super interesting how they actually had to scale the organization during COVID uh, as about a seven-year-old business and, and the bobbing and weaving that they had to do. And also um, kind of her passion around the core values and the culture side of the business too. So hope you really enjoy the podcast today. If you do, make sure that you like it, share it with your friends and subscribe, but we'll see you on the inside. Hey, Kate, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really looking forward to learning a little bit more about your story and also learning a little bit more about the, the business as, as well. There's something that's kind of cool about the business that you're running. I mean, first off, I think you're the first alcohol brand that we've actually had on the podcast. But then the Hi. name, the, yeah, and I don't know why I got to go out and, and grab a few more for sure. But then you've got the name Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey. So what the heck does that mean? Yes. Well, Uncle Nearest is actually the first known African-American master distiller, and ah. he was distilling whiskey in the 1800s in Tennessee and was using a process, a filtration process, which is now known as the Lincoln County process, to filter the whiskey through um, the charcoal from sugar maple trees. Now, that process today, known as the Lincoln County process, is what distinguishes Tennessee whiskey from Kentucky bourbon. That's interesting. I was going to ask you about that. Okay. Yeah. So his process, you know, he was an enslaved man um, who'd been brought to a farm that was on our previous bottles. You can see the Dan Call farm. And he'd been brought there specifically to make whiskey for this preacher, Dan Call. And over the course of time, ended up being a mentor to others. And we really wanted to honor his story. When my, our founder heard his story about 2000, June 2016, no one had ever heard of Uncle Nearest. And it was, you know, really became her life's mission to make sure that the world knew who he was and that without him, there was no Tennessee whiskey. He really is the godfather of Tennessee whiskey. That's super intriguing. Okay. So we've got, you know, bourbon and you've got scotch and you've got whiskey. 
Are you like a rye whiskey, which is the Canadian whiskeys, or are you different? No. So Tennessee whiskey is essentially, it falls in the category of an American whiskey, and it has all the characteristics of bourbon. So there's like very strict, you know, guidelines for bourbon must be more than 51% corn. Um, it has to be aged for a minimum of two years in new American oak containers. So there's all these like little pieces. So a Tennessee whiskey follows all that. But in order to call yourself a Tennessee whiskey, A, you've got to be made in Tennessee. And B, you've got to be using this extra filtration process, which is in, adds anywhere from like six to 12 weeks, if not more, to the process because you're cutting down trees, burning them, creating charcoal, and then filtering the distillate through that charcoal. That's super intriguing. Okay. Now you said something to me funny before we went live as well. And your primary drink of choice is? Chardonnay. <laughs> so that was my first, like when Fawn, our CEO and her husband, uh, they'd send me a, an NDA and I was learning the story and they called me and they're like, so this is what we're going to do. And I was, I remember, I, I distinctly remember I was actually in the car with my brand new son. And I was like, y'all, this is great, but I drink Chardonnay. Like, <laughs> what do I know? So I learned a ton. Um, I'm a, I, I was a history major in college. And one of the fun things about this uh, is that I really dug into the history of whiskey and bourbon in this country and um, how responsible or how much they played a part in building this country, the history with slavery and everything. And it was so fascinating to me and started to just kind of add to my collection. Um, I, you know, I love our whiskey. I love trying other whiskey. I like whiskey cocktails, but you know, I, I grew up in Sonoma County, California. So I grew up with wine. Uh, so I, you know, I love still it. drink my Chardonnay. I, I still give my whiskey some love as well, for sure. But I love that you're so like kind of geek out on the history side of things, which is where a lot of the culture of the organization comes from as well, right? So you really yeah. kind of bring that into the organization. It's funny, though, that yeah. you mentioned that you, you know, you're like, oh, my gosh, like I drink Chardonnay. Years ago, Simon Sinek, Simon and I have been friends for over a decade. He, he was on our board of advisors probably four years before he wrote his book, Start With Why. And I remember uh, Simon calling me up one day and, and he said that he just landed the Archdiocese of New Hampshire, uh, the, the Catholic Church as a client. I'm like, but you're Jewish. He goes, I know. He goes, I was in the meeting and they said, um, I forget what the, the exact question was, like, are you are you Catholic or whatever? And Simon said, I have faith. I'm like, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's basically like, do you like to drink? Yes or no? Okay, great. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they, they just yeah. asked the wrong question. Okay, so yeah, love this. That's hysterical. And the company when you when you got involved, because you've been there now as chief business officer for just over six years, was it a startup when you got involved as well? Absolutely. So the article that was written in the New York Times by a writer named Clay Risen came out in June 2016. Vaughn immediately was researching, went to Tennessee met with family member, like was September, October, met with family members. She reached out to me end of November. And by December, 2016, I was working on this project. So yeah, I mean, I was, I'm employee, I'm actually employee number one. And it was really like, a, it really was at the beginning, just a project. And I knew there was a lot there. I just, I didn't, you know, I was coming from hospitality um, and fitness, like in sales and marketing. So this was completely new. And the dynamics of this business are completely different than anything I'd experienced before. So I wasn't, I, I wasn't entirely sure, like, how deep I was going or what was going to happen. But yeah, I was employee number one. We were still looking at bottle shapes and labels and meeting with branding companies. And like, I mean, I was in some of those original meetings where everyone's just, you know, shooting the shit and like figuring out what we're going to do. It was really, 
I think back to those times and being like, God, I had no freaking clue what I was going on still, you know, just taking it all in. But that's a core thing that the COO or the second in command of a really early stage company has to be good at is not to be great at one thing. When you're so good at one thing, it's impossible to then manage all the other stuff that you mm. think you need the, the experience for that sometimes it is just a gut check. I remember being the COO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK and I came in as the employee number 14. I left, we had 3,100 employees six wow. years later, but we were picking the colors of the company. And, and I'm like, I thought green and blue were terrible colors for GOT-JUNK. And, and, you know, I wanted, I wanted red and blue. Like, so you lost that debate though, huh? <laughs> thank God, because I didn't realize at the time that blue and green were going to be the colors of recycling and of, of the earth. And I'm right. like, oh, shit, that yeah. makes sense. So what was the, the organization with one employee? How many do you have now? We have well over, so on the, like on, on the uncle nearest or the brand side, we have over 50, but then we have our distillery, which has been built out. So we're over, I mean, we're, we're right around a hundred and a little over a hundred employees. So what's it like when you're, you know, in an organization and it scales like that and changes where in the early days, you're kind of the jack of all trades or you know, the, the master of none, right. Or the mistress of none, whatever, how about we word it more generically. Um, when you're to now where you're really leading bigger parts of the organization, how have you had to scale? I mean, it's been a lot of shift and it's actually, to be honest with you, it's been, it's sometimes my challenge and Fawn would tell you too, is, is to let stuff go, right? Because at the very beginning I was doing so many different things. And I think part of scaling is learning to when you need the extra hand. So, you know, in 2020, we finally hired a VP of marketing. And I was like, but I love that side. And it's like, if I didn't have Lucia by my side right now, I don't even know how right. I'd be breathing, you know, and, and, you know, we brought on some SVPs to really oversee distributors and really manage our teams throughout the U.S. If I hadn't done that, I don't know how I would be breathing. So those were the kind of toughest parts for me to realize we had to add people to, for all of us to be successful. But I also had to understand that doesn't mean I was not doing the right thing. It was like there was no other in, in order for us to continue to grow and to thrive. We needed experts and we needed other people to help us. That's actually such a common thing. One of our, our um, last COO Alliance meetings, a lot of our members were talking about that same idea. So in, in terms of, of letting go and bringing these senior people in, what's the first shift that you had to go through in the mindset to be okay with doing that? And then secondly, once you're doing it, can you walk us through the step-by-steps of how you bring in somebody great and how you bring in someone senior into an existing organization? Yeah. So um, so distribution on the liquor side is pretty interesting. So if this is a three-tier and four-tier system, and every single state has a different law about liquor, and you have to hire a distributor in every single state. Now, there are distributors that handle, a, you know, let's say, call it our current partner, R&D. You see handles 30 plus states. So we contracted with them, but then we still had to set something up in every single state. And while doing that, you know, that was a big challenge. Myself, Fawn and Steve, who was, you know, basically my right hand from the very beginning, we all together, like I was in charge of figuring out distribution and rolling out to all 50 states and to get that done in under two years. Our story was hot. We needed to get that done. Just so you know, the liquor industry looked at me like an, I was an absolute idiot. Like you don't do that. Like you do that, like seven at a time, you seed it, but we knew different and, and we had our goals. So for me, I had a lot of ownership in all these 50 states. Like I was like, but I found all these and we all went out and rolled them out and developed relationships. And, but I was, I could not effectively manage 50 different relationships, 50, you know, and, and hire proper people in all those markets. So the first stage of hiring 
two extra people to help us. And those two men that came on had been in the business, you know, for over 20 years. So Mm. I was like, okay, yeah, that's great. But I'm like, but I'm the one who did all this upfront work. And it was hard for me to let that go. Thank God for them. Because I've also learned so much from them and learned, you know, I was doing pricing and doing things. And, you know, I, you know, did a, I think a great job, but there was other things that could have been done differently and better. And they knew some different buttons to push. And so that was kind of phase one in 2020 with, you know, when we were all forced to sort of sit still for a little bit, you know, in many of the markets that we have, like at California, like I had team members that couldn't be out in the market at all, just with all the laws and the things that were happening. Wow. We had a big, we had a pause and and, and we spent a lot of time developing marketing. We read um, myself, Fawn and Steve, who is our now oversees our venture fund. We read a book called How Brands Grow and had a lot of conversations about our brands and what we wanted to do. And we were able to spend a little bit of that pause time on really like developing branding and marketing. And that was the moment where it was like, we need another person here to help us do all that. That part also was hard for me because I was like, but I've been doing this, you know, but we found we we took our time. We asked all we we had some people really help us. We had our team members go out and sort of look for appropriate people to fill that VP of marketing role. And we went through a pretty rigorous process. And I would say the person we hired, Lucia, is I mean, I can't imagine doing this without her at this point. It I didn't realize how much I needed her until she started. And I was like, oh yes. And and we've been able to do so so much more in the programming that we can do and the things that we just, you know, again, we were, we were doing everything right, but we were able to do everything even better. When even we better. Yeah. How are you funded? Um, so we are, we're, we're, um, it's, we have, inv- we have investors, right? So, F- so Fawn did an original um, round at the beginning and then she does all the, she does all the fundraising. We have very loyal, incredible investors. Um, we're, we're, pri- we're privately owned. Um, she still is, you know, the majority shareholder, all that good stuff. So. Can you speak to how much you've raised and how that has changed or has it changed the organization at all? I don't have, I actually, to be honest with you, don't have those numbers off the top of my head. I'll say this, it's an expensive business to be in. So mm. at the very beginning, okay, so you, I like I just talked about like the nuances of bourbon or whiskey. Okay, so some, it has an age, a minimum of two years, but really out in this market, four, right? So when you launch a business like this, you have to buy product. So we, we launch with source products. So that's a lot of product to acquire. The American whiskey market is very hot right now. Um, and there is not as much supply as there is demand. So that was that's an, that's an expensive undertaking. And then when Fawn and her husband, Keith, found our current distillery site, which is a which is a, a 300 plus acre farm in the middle of Shelbyville, Tennessee, which is halfway between Nashville and Lynchburg. They're like, this has to be our home. They knew that, but that had to be a whole nother raise. I mean, that out in the, you know, out in the press will tell you it's it's a $50 million project to, wow. to, to build that distillery. Wow. Um, that distillery will be, is our home base. It's, it's bringing in visitors from all over the world and it is helping us build the brand and it's giving us legitimacy. People now are like, okay, so there was this brand they sourced. Now we're making our own product and now we have a place we can go and we can learn about the story. So it was incredibly important, but just, I can give you some of like that yeah, thing yeah. between all the money we had used to source to build out the distillery. And then we have a pretty, I mean, for a company that's as big as our, like, like for how old we are and, you know, where we are, we have a really 
pretty big team. Again, because our goal was to get out into the market as quickly as possible and to ensure that everybody knew this story as quickly as possible. So um, we have very we have great investors and people that are really loyal to our brand. And Fawn has a long list of people that reach out on a daily basis wanting to invest money in this brand. So I don't think we'll ever have um, we'll never have a shortage and there's never going to be any concerns on that end. And she'll tell anyone, look you in the eye and people don't even believe me. I'm like, I've looked her in the eye. This The company is meant to be a private company. There's no you know, plans to sell or to put it out to market. You know, The story of Nears Green was lost for so much time. And her goal is to, to build up this legacy, to build up the story, to build it to a place where nearest name or face will be carved into the, you know, the Mount Rushmore of whiskey, right? So Jimmy, Jack, Johnny, nearest. So that's that's where we're at. So I think people, you know, they see us moving really fast and are like, why are you doing that? And really it's just because there's a lot of time to make up for. That's super cool. We only have so much time on this earth to get done what we want to get done. And the goal is to leave this to others to continue to, to, to drive this legacy. Hey, it's Cameron. Did you hear? That's right. I wrote another book. But this book isn't just another book for me. It's actually for you, the visionary CEO that is looking to grow and scale their business. This book is called The Second in Command, Unleash the Power of Your COO. As a founder and CEO, you're used to making all the decisions, but the business you have isn't the one you envision. Heck, we've all been there. And the thing is, you know what you need. You need a COO. Someone who can help you build the company you don't know how to build on your own. The Second in Command is your go-to guidebook when you're ready to scale up. I go through all the details in every aspect of the process, from knowing when you need to hire a COO, through identifying and hiring the right candidate, and successfully onboarding and working with them, and so much more. Go to CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to get your copy today. The second command reveals the benefits COOs bring to companies and explores the many ways a COO mastermind or a COO forum can help grow the COO skills. You'll meet the types of COOs and understand the role each type plays, discover how to bring on a COO into your company with the least disruption, and avoid common problems before they arrive. Once again, it's CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to grab your copy today. There's no need to go it alone. We're in this together. Now back to the show. I can see your why you're why you're so good in the second command role too. I mean, you absolutely kind of bleed the culture of the organization. Like you buy into it, you believe in it. It sounds like you've got a really good relationship with Fawn, the CEO, as well. Has it always been absolutely. easy this the relationship with her, or do you struggle at times? You know, in the relationships, and and when you do, how do you get through those? That's a good question. So, um, so Fawn and I have known each other for years. So. In our 20s, we were both working in like this really cool new hotel in Santa Monica. It's called the Viceroy Hotel. And she was on the events side and I was on the room sales side, but we were both salespeople. And she'll tell you, like, I think we both just admired our, we both worked really hard and we were both overachievers, you know, and we stayed in contact. She moved on and did her thing. I moved on and did my thing. In 2015, she reached out to me just on like completely out of the blue. I was the director of sales and marketing at a luxury property in Beverly Hills with like kind of a crappy commute to small children um, and hotel business is tough. And you, I was managing a team of 18 on property and you're there it's a lot of hours. She just reached out. And I, in my mind had said like, uh, in my mind, I don't know if she even knows this. I 
needed a shift. I was teaching spin and yoga on the side because I loved it. And it was like a pure pleasure of mine. Like I was teaching at like 5.30 in the morning, getting dressed and then going to work because I just loved it. And I knew there was something in my mind I wanted to do on that in that side of the world. So she reached into me and I ended up being able to leave the hotel business. I worked with her on a, on a project for about a year and a half. And then this, the, the nearest screen, uncle nearest story came to life. She and I have a really good relationship. Um, she treats me really fairly. She's always been amazing to me. She, um, she, I love her and Keith. She loves my me and Alan. She, um, Funny enough, like we just had an investors event in July. She'll tell you too, like she believes my daughter Reese is going to be the next CEO and like and introduced her as such. She's 14, just so we're clear. Amazing. <laughs> so those are some like really, really cool things. My dad passed away in March of 2019. And yeah, um, thank you. She So her dad and my dad had the same name and both died of the same cancer. And um, I remember telling her and um, I'll leave that. But it was a really tough you know, obviously a tough time. And she, from what I understand, I didn't see all this basically told everyone in the company, like, do not reach out to Kate unless it's to tell her you're sorry and to give her a hug um, until she is ready. And was like, very serious. Like it would be like a big problem if you did. Yeah. And the day of my dad's funeral, um, I saw these cars pull up and it was like a clown car. And literally every person in my company at that time was at my dad's funeral. She'd paid for everyone to fly out. And that's in California, you know, we're in California. So just to show you like, yeah. To me, that was, I mean, I, my family to this day, like we're all just sort of like, wow, that really happened. It was an amazing moment. Fawn does not pull any punches. She does not sugarcoat things. She is as direct as they come. And that doesn't work for everybody, right? It works for me now. And she and I have had to have conversations and I have had to, I've had to learn a lot about, you know, I, you know, business is not personal person, you know, like there's like a, there's gotta be a separation and I think for me, um, growing up kind of like as a people pleaser and somebody who doesn't want anyone to be like mad or upset or whatever, directness was not always easy for me because it feels like, oh, are they mad? But she's, she's, but she's not right. Like, it's like, if she's telling you something's not working or it's, she needs something, she's just direct about it. And I think a lot, it takes a lot of learning for people. I've learned that. So that's how our relationship continues to evolve. And there are moments where it's like, I'll say, I'll text her and say, can I just run something by you? And maybe I read something she wrote, or we were having a conversation and I didn't really understand her point and I can think about it. And then I'll call her and be like, can we have this conversation? I just want to understand. And I've learned a lot. I've learned a ton from her and building this business has not been easy. Those first few years were really, were tough and they were really, they were tough, but also like I was learning so much and it was so amazing. And you're seeing the recognition of everything happening, but behind the scenes, yeah, not knowing a hundred percent what I was doing all the time was pretty tough, <laughs> you know? So yeah. How do you, how do you kind of work through those stages when you don't know what you're doing? Is it just fake it till you make it? Or is it, do you turn Sometimes it was, yeah. Sometimes it was fake it till I make it and just stand on like, yes, I know this is what we're going to do. Um, I also found people like little there were people that I think believed in the story, believed in me and believed in the passion of all of it and would sort of become like mini mentors. Some of those people aren't even in the business anymore, but there were people that would try to help. There were also people that wanted to like pat me on the head and be like, it's really cute that you want to do this, but this is not going to work or whatever it was, you know? So those guys I pushed aside. 
I think one of the things that's important in this business is I wasn't interacting with any women. A lot of what was happening was men. Um, and I mean, I would a lot of white men and a lot of men that have been in this business for a really long time and have seen it all done one particular way. So that was challenging. That that part was challenging just to make our way through those weeds. And at times, and Fawn will tell you too, there were times where people wouldn't call us back. It took Keith calling them or emailing them. And then they'd be like, oh, yes. And then he'd turn them over to us, you know, but those were some learning things in the business. But yeah, there was a lot. I mean, I would say the thing we always had is when there's so many new brands. I don't, I mean, the amount of brands that come out on a monthly basis, I talked to our distributor partners, they have to weed through so many new brands. Everyone thinks they've got the greatest new oh. vodka. Like, I don't even know how you can keep coming up with a new vodka. Vodka is vodka. Like there's nothing. Vodka is vodka. I'm sorry. It's great. It serves its purpose, but there's a million vodkas, a million tequilas, a million whiskeys. No one had our story, mm. you know, and that was different. It wasn't like Fawn fell on her head on a hike one day and saw a sun, the sky, and then we created this label based on her vision. And here we are. It's like, no, we're bringing history to light. We're bringing in a man's story, an African-American man's story, a story that was lost in time, a man whose contribution, like if you look at Tennessee whiskey brands, Jack Daniels, George Dickel, like, you know, the list goes on. There's no Tennessee whiskey without nearest contribution, without him teaching that process, that filtration process is what differentiates it. So that was really like a big key. But it's also super cool that it's a women-led orga organization doing it. Like that's got to be that's got to be really, really rare in the industry. It's extremely rare. An African American woman, especially running it and owning it, is not. It's not. That's that's not heard of. So yes, we are. Yeah, we are different. So, so Fawn's African-American as well. Okay, that's cool. I was wondering what the tie-in was going to be on the, the politically correct side of things, is, but th that that actually connects the dot there pretty easily. That It's not like you're you're leveraging something you shouldn't be. Right. It's, it's, it's leveraging something that seems natural at that point. And people thought she was like part of the family, which is what's funny, right? But it's like, no, like literally it's just, there's so many stories untold. And I will say, sorry, and I know I interrupt you, but like, if Nearest had like his story had been lost in time, it turned out he like invented the why we all drink coffee today. We'd probably be selling coffee and like celebrating him there. It was it's really about continuing. It's like this twofold thing, continuing to bring African-American stories, black stories to life. And then the other piece right now where we are is showing people that an African-American owned led company, female led company, what we can do. And we're trying to help other, you know, we we also mentor and help a lot of other companies because this is not really been this hasn't been done before it's interesting that you're so like i love that you're so enamored with the story and entrenched in the story and that it's such a big part of the dna because to, to build any great business it has to be a little more than a business a little bit less than a religion right it's got to get into that zone of a cult and and it, it feels like uncle nearest is a bit of a cult culture in a good way right yeah, is, is, in is a your, healthy way. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Like you don't you don't go too far, right? Right. So, it, what's your culture like? How would you describe the company culture itself? Our company culture is, I mean, it's first of all, it's extremely important to us. Our culture is everything. Um, we really speak to each other like we're family. Um, we have guiding principles. Fun. Put pen to paper on the guiding principles and about a year into the business and then had a group of us really weigh in on them. And we debated and came up with these guiding principles of, you know, everything from pound the rock, you know, meaning like every day we pound the rock and one day it's going to 
break. And that's really what we've had to do to, um, you know, like leaving a legacy behind. I'm going to, I'm blanking. This is like the worst thing this, that I can be doing right now. But, you know, family time is extolled, like just family times quite like time, like Fawn takes every week. She works six days a week. That's not the expectation for everyone else. That's just, she actually like loves to work, mm. but she takes a Sabbath on Sundays and she does not work and she won't do anything with work. And she spends a day with her husband and her day doing anything. And if anything feels like work, she's not doing it. So she, you know, there's, there's things like that, that she's really big on recently, the end of December, we, we actually now have two weeks in a year, one in December, one in July, where she's shutting down the company because what she found is the way our culture was, is that everyone loves to work and we're working really hard. But if I go on vacation, I'm just on my Slack and my email and I'm not actually on vacation. Um, and then if I'm emailing, then people are going to email me back. And then it's like a cycle, right? I'm just using myself as an example. So she has two weeks of we're shutting down on meaning like you can't Slack someone, you can't email someone, like everyone's going to just shut up for a vacation, you know, but for a week at a time and try to just reset and be ready to like, to finish the year or to start the year. Um, so that's, a, I think that's a big part of culture. And she sent out an email right before it started in December and was like, I'm really serious. Cause the first time that you send an email to your colleague, you're then like opening that door. And so then it's like, Oh, if that person's working, then why am I not working or whatever it might be. So long story short, we all love, we love on each other. A colleague, um, unfortunately lost a son unexpectedly in 2020. And even though nobody was really flying at the time or doing anything, I mean, I would say, 80%, 90% of our company got on planes and went to his funeral to be there to support him. And then, you know, we'd all been like, we're going to be really strict masks on, like no touching everyone in their own aisle da, 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 when we're on the bus. And, you know, within five minutes of that, everyone's like, I haven't seen you in so long. I missed you, you know, kind of thing. So it's a really, it really is a family like culture. Um, but we all also just work our asses off too. Yeah. Uh, how was it for the organization during COVID? I mean, we're two and a half plus years ago that it kind of hit. You guys were really in the almost launch phase of a business or or how did you adapt? What 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 changes did you have to make? How did you get through it? Good question. I mean, a lot of the people we had hired at the time, we had hired really to help us build our business through the on-premise, which we call like bars and restaurants. And so that was what was hit the hardest. So there was a lot of pivoting to having to go out and really support um, and make sure we had our footprint. And, and we already had been, but we were focusing so much on bars and restaurants. We really focus in on the off-prem, which is like the, sto the stores, grocery stores, um, and then really dialing into e-commerce and making sure, you know, we, we actually launched selling online. So we were ahead of the game, I think, versus a lot of other folks. Right. Um, Oh, there all these all this new e-commerce really emerged and grew. And so we really had to we had to get in there quickly. We evolved our digital marketing strategies quite a bit. And then as um as states started to allow like to go cocktails and things like that, we jumped on that and created fun like mason jars and all these different things so we could actually help support in the bars and restaurants doing to go cocktails. And we were just, we were able to do a lot of stuff and pivot quickly because we're a small company. And it was like, do we, let's try this, let's try that, do that. And I, and that really kept our team motivated, having fun. Um, you know, while we were, where at the time where we were like just quarantined and you couldn't do anything, we had the team out kind of writing plans about how like in the plans were all like marketing base plans. Like once we open up again, how are you going to hit the ground running, you know, kind of thing. And so we just, that, those were really important. We kept to keep the team really motivated and for us to continue to do business differently. We didn't lose a single person during COVID. In fact, 
as time went on, we actually started just adding people because what we realized is like we had markets we were managing from afar, but we needed people on the ground in those markets so that we didn't lose any foothold, you know, while there were so many restrictions in place. It's interesting. It sounds in many ways, it was kind of the whole, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, right? That I think you guys, you guys sounds like we're entrepreneurial enough and could bob and weave and adapt. Do you think that there were some really big strengths that came to your organization because of COVID then? Like, did it actually set you up for some of the success you're having today? Absolutely. I think, you know, I think it's important too. So let's, let's say, so I was in Los Angeles. So Friday, the 13th, I'll remember is when I got the email, like, come get your kids two weeks. You know, the mayor of Los Angeles is on the radio saying, let's stay home from bars and restaurants. And I'm like, what a jerk. Like, don't do that to our industry. Like, why would you do that? You know, and I'm telling my kids, we're going to go to restaurants. We're not, we're going to support, you know? And then over the weekend, you get to Monday and it's like, everything's shut down. And, you know, within a week, it's like just changed so much. And I think one of the things that was incredible for our company is Fawn that Tuesday got an all company call and said, everyone's jobs are safe. We're good. This is what we're going to do. And we continue to do those kind of check-in calls with the whole team, make like check in on everyone's mental health, make sure everyone was doing okay and encouraging them to look and do things differently. So I will say, I think the, that time helped our team develop some like stronger sales skills, stronger uh, marketing skills for myself, for fun, for Steve, for some, you know, our, Lucia, who we brought on, it helped us really um, hone in on our branding and our marketing and who we were going to be. And and we really just learned to be able to pivot quickly. And I, again, being a smaller organization, we had that. We didn't have to like go through a lot of layers to figure stuff out. We just started throwing things out there and trying new things. And a lot of that is why we ended up continuing to grow during that time. Makes a lot of sense. All right. I want you to think about growing, but I want to think about your growth. So what are you focusing on as a leader today? Where are you growing in terms of your skill set? That's a great question. I think because for the last six years, I mean, I, there's there's a lot of innovation at the very beginning. And then there's been a lot of management and figuring things out. Um, right now, it's about, for me, innovation and creativity again, and, and kind of getting into that and, and looking at new ways to do business, new ways to market new ways to sell. Um, I'm digging into the the global market a little bit more right now, figuring out what our next steps are there, putting myself through um, a chief marketing certificate, actually through uh, Kellogg, just because I want to learn more. I've, I've, everything I've ever done has been learned on the job, and I want to make sure there's things I'm not missing as well. Um, and the other piece is, is really, it kind of goes back to what I talked about at the beginning, you know, I'm a person who I'm, I, I, I have tendencies. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm a fun person. I'm humorous. I'm fun. I like to be the life of the party. I'm an extrovert, all those things. Um, but also just continuing to learn to like, to, 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 uh, to take out my toughness a little bit more when I need to. That's cool. That's my muscles. A little bit can, you, can you speak to, to the whole, like being a mom and being a, an executive and a leader and how do you balance that as well? Yeah. So I grew up with parents that worked. So um, none of that. So I like, and they both worked a lot. I mean, I was, you know, I had babysitters after school, all that kind of stuff. So um, none of that stuff, like, so that piece is like how I, that's how I watched. That's what I, that's what I was mirroring in this role. It's tough. I will say because there's travel and um, you know, I work from home. And so, you know, during the day I'm going, but like kids come home and I'm still mom working, not just mom, but I actually think my, I, I think, for me, having the partner I have in my life, my husband, he grew up with his mom, um, you know, just grew up with his mom who 
raised them and basically started a business and runs her own business today. So he's very supportive and like loves to see women doing that kind of stuff. And he um, has a great job, but has flexibility as well. And so I have a partner in crime hundred percent. It's funny. He's traveling this week for the first time in a couple of years for his job. Like they're finally like on the road and I'm single parenting this week. And I'm like, how's he been doing this? Or <laughs> you know, so um, it really is about your life partners and who's out there supporting you. And we're also, I will say my, my kids and I are surrounded by a great community and a lot of um, my female friends are all badass women working as well. And so, you know, we've got a carpool situation and all the things. So we're all, I think that's a lot of it. Um, and I think my kids are proud. Like they love for a long time, they were giving me shit when we walk into Whole Foods and you couldn't see Uncle Nearest anywhere. So now they see that they're proud. They know that we have to always walk by the bottles, make sure they look okay and all the things. So there's a lot of pride in that. Um, when we were on the cover of American Whiskey Magazine uh, a couple years ago, it was at Whole Foods. And I had this video of my little guy. He's six now. So he was four at the time. And I was like, who's that? And he's like, that's mama. And I we had this kind of badass. And I'm like, what's mama doing on this magazine? He goes, mom's mad, <laughs> you know, because we were all like bad mugged. And, but it was just fun. for It's fun for them. So I, you know, I, I, I try to keep them you know, up to speed with what we're doing. And I want to model that, that all of this can be done. And I'll tell you what, on the weekends, they're all mine. And I also, I overcommit to stuff in their lives, which I I'm actually working on, but I'm the president of our PTA, which is probably a questionable decision <laughs> from a time standpoint. I coach my little guy's soccer. Like we do, I do a lot of stuff so that they also know, like I'm there for them. That's super cool. Well, and you're also you're also grooming the future CEO of um of I have a big well. responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. I gotta show her this is cool. I can't have a meltdown about work in front of her. She's never gonna want to take the role. Right, exactly. And <laughs> you're gonna have to report to your daughter pretty soon, too. All right, I want to go back it's to so the cute. 21... She said she's gonna buy me a house someday when she's the CEO. I'm like, girl, I will have bought my I have a house. I will be buying my second home then, and you can just worry about you, okay? That's cute. <laughs> All right, let's go back to the 21, 22-year-old Kate Jerkins or pre-Jerkins, you're just Kate. What advice would you give yourself when you were 21 or 22 that maybe you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then? Gosh, that's so good. I would just say just just patience, just to learn patience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was in a big hurry for a lot of stuff. And, I, and um, patience, and I would say, and I've said this now, you know, I think going back to, you know, no matter what job you're in and whatever that job might be, people are always watching and doing your best and, and being excellent at what you're doing matters. Even when you think you're in a job that's menial, that people aren't paying attention to. And I've literally done everything. I have worked at hardware stores and made keys and mixed paint. I have babysat. I've worked at travel agencies and like sorted tickets. I've done it all, but I've always done work in an excellent manner, in my opinion. And so in my 20s, when I met Vaughn, I was 24 or 25, and she remembered my work ethic from then, right? And so I think that's the thing. I think patience, because I was, as a 20-something-year-old, really wanted to be moving really fast. And I actually did. I was a VP by the time I was 28 years old, 29 years old. But I didn't. I wish I'd had a little more patience and could have sat back and learned a little more here and there. But I will say... I would say to anyone is like every job you do, you do it with excellence or, or because you just never know who's watching you. I love that. I've never heard that one before. And it's so true. Kate Jerkins, the chief business officer for uncle nearest premium whiskey. Thanks so much for sharing with us on the second command podcast. Thank you. So nice to meet you. Appreciate it. You as well. 
You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com. <laughs>